Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Misery Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, March 25th, we're studying Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. Right before Jesus enters into Jerusalem, Jesus tells a parable about a nobleman and his servants in response to the people's expectations concerning the appearance of the kingdom of God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Stephen Preuss. Pastor Preuss serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Vinton, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks. Good to be back. As we get started this morning, Pastor Preuss, let's talk a little bit of context. Jesus is almost to Jerusalem. He's been traveling that way for quite some time in Luke's Gospel. What do we need to know about the context that helps us with this last text before Jesus gets to Jerusalem? So this text right before we begin here, Jesus has just entered Jericho uh, and he was sitting in Zacchaeus' house and actually he still is. Zacchaeus, the, the rich chief tax collector who repented of his sin and uh, trusted in Jesus, Jesus came to his house and uh, our Lord had just told him today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And so it's uh, right after this, to those who heard these things we hear in in the next verse, uh, Jesus proceeded to tell this parable of the ten minas, uh, our text for consideration today. So let's just take that introductory verse that St. Luke gives us before we get to the parable Jesus tells. Verse 11, St. Luke writes this, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That's just verse 11 of chapter 19. And we've we've had St. Luke do this for us before as a preface to Jesus' parables. He'll tell us why or the situation. And it, it's always nice when we get it because it helps us to understand the parable. So tell us about the reasoning before we actually read the parable and, and go through it. What's the, what's the reasoning? What's the setting? And how's that going to affect our reading of the parable? Sure, yeah. So first, St. Luke says that uh, the reason Jesus told this parable, the Ten Minas, is because he was near to Jerusalem. And, you know, he's not just trying to tell us his location, right, that he's 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem here, and so he's near there. He's also anticipating that which he has already spoken of. So he told his disciples why he was going up to Jerusalem back in chapter 18, when he said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. And we hear this, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So that's chapter 18, verses 31 to 34. And the disciples, they're actually looking forward to something else as, as they come near to Jerusalem. It's not the crucifixion and the resurrection, as Jesus says. They're looking forward to when Jesus would be crowned 
as as the blind beggar called him the son of David, the king of Israel, uh, but not on the cross with thorns. They were thinking being crowned and ushered into a physical kingdom, uh, the kingdom of glory here on earth. So Jesus' parable, uh, he's telling this, as St. Luke says, not just because he's near Jerusalem, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So that's the problem that they have. Uh, their enthusiasm is so high. Uh, and so this erroneous idea that they had about his kingdom of glory being ushered in immediately, that had to be corrected. And so this parable is going to correct that idea. Uh, and at the same time, Jesus is going to use this parable to teach his disciples the important role that they would play as the, the vessels that would carry his word and, and sacraments uh, to, to the, the, the world. And so it's a, it's a great parable that uh, is probably not as well known amongst uh, some, mm. some Christians. And so it's, it's well worth going through to consider you know, how Jesus did need to correct these disciples and, and prepare them uh, for what they were going to be doing. You mentioned the use of the son of David in chapter 18 as one of the ways that the expectations, the fervor over Jesus coming into Jerusalem has been building and, and leading to some of these erroneous expectations. He's in Zacchaeus's house in this, at this point, as you said. Is there something that happened with Zacchaeus in particular or anything that we heard in the previous text that also might lead to some of these erroneous notions of the kingdom of God. It, I, I was trying to make some connections. The only one that I could think of is the fact that Jesus says salvation has come to yeah. this house and maybe they've got the wrong understanding of that word. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that that's exactly what, you know, what does it mean that he came to seek and save the lost? What does it mean that he uh, it has come to bring this salvation and people have, a skewed view of it. And we see this with the disciples all the time. Um, it's, it is hidden from them. Uh, but it's also, uh, they, they can't see past the death. They can't see past the suffering. Uh, and they're not really listening to Jesus and they can't see his resurrection and, and, you know, the kingdom as it is hidden in the kingdom of grace, uh, where he is saving us through his word and sacraments until, uh, the kingdom of glory. They're just not thinking that way. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think that, I think you're probably right there with, it's just the salvation that they just misunderstand. Uh, this parable in the ESV is called the parable of the 10 minas. You mentioned that earlier and you said it's a less familiar parable. I think you're right. Sometimes, at least in my own mind, when I think of, there's going to be some details here that are going to remind of the parable of the talents, which is told right. in Matthew's gospel. And there's going to be some similarities, but there's something different, I think, going on here or slightly different emphases. In terms of the the title of the parable, though, it's something I, I like to think about with the parables, the parable of the ten minas. What's the parable about? Is it about the minas? Is that the key detail? Just and I know we haven't read it yet, but what's the what's going to be the driving force of this parable? Is it the minas or is it something else? No, the driving force is going to be the fact that Jesus is is the nobleman, the king, uh, who ha has received his kingdom, and uh, he has received his kingdom in such a way that he. Uh, has won for all of us the, the grace of God. Um, by his death on the cross, he has appeased God's anger and his wrath, and he has been raised from the dead, descended back to his father, and, and is now the God-man who intercedes 
for all of us as the king of kings. And it is because of that that he then gives out the minas. And we'll talk about, you know, what that means and and how he's going to come back uh, in order to, you know, not just see how we've used the minas, although we'll certainly get into that and how important that is. But ultimately, he is he's establishing his kingdom here on Earth uh, in order to bring all of us to his uh, to the kingdom of glory. So, yeah, we don't want to lose lose that emphasis on this is more about about Jesus than it is about us. It's only about us and, and anything that we we do. And we'll talk about what we actually do and how the Lord is actually uh, the one doing it through us. Yeah. Um, but we do want to just focus ourselves first and foremost that on Jesus uh, and to see that this parable uh, is meant to show us his kingly reign over us and what it looks like. Uh, and therefore, you know, what, how we're involved in that and, and how his disciples were back then. All right. With that introduction, then we've got verse 11, why Jesus is telling the parable. He's near Jerusalem. There's a misunderstanding about the coming of the kingdom of God. So Jesus tells this parable. We pick the text up again in verse 12 of chapter 19. Jesus said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a, hand, in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That's our text for today. That was Luke 19, those verses 12 to 27. Pastor Price, you mentioned earlier that we're going to understand the nobleman as Jesus. But there's some historical background here that as Jesus tells this story, maybe it's not going to sound all that uh, unusual to to his hearers of the day. What's some of the historical background we need to know for this part of Luke 19? Yeah, it's good to know that Jesus' hearers would have thought it perfectly normal that a nobleman would go into a foreign land and receive royal authority being made king over others. So to us, it might sound a little strange. Um, but uh, the son of Herod the Great, uh, Archelaus, uh, did just this. He went to Rome after his father's death in order to be declared king over Judea and Samaria. 
And his brother Antipas actually did the the same thing. He tried to lay claim to this kingdom, but he failed. Uh, he had some support from some Jewish delegations from Jerusalem, but he completely failed in that. So they know about this kind of stuff. This this is not a strange idea to the hearers. Uh, but you know, with that in mind, the nobleman in the parable is clearly Jesus himself. We should see this. We call this a, a Christological reading, right, of these parables to see Christ as the one there. Uh, he will go into a far country by means of his death, resurrection, and ascension. Uh, that is, he'll go back to his home country, back to his father in heaven. And he goes back there as the God-man. So why do we say God-man? Well, we say that because he's not just the son of God, but he has taken upon himself our flesh and blood. And in his state of humiliation, where he did not fully use his divine powers, he won for us uh, the righteousness that, that we need. He paid our, for our sins and he, he died the death we deserve and has now won for us forgiveness, eternal life, and salvation. And he goes back to his father, uh, not just as you know the eternal son of God, but as the eternal son of God who took upon himself all of our sin and paid for it in full and now is exalted. He is raised to the father's right hand to intercede for us. And uh, that is what he is currently doing for all those who, who trust in him and are hearing his word here on earth. And so there will be a considerable time we hear in the parable before he then returns. So, you know, to start with, with this parable, we need to see then that Jesus himself is this nobleman. He has uh, gone uh, by the means of his death, resurrection, ascension, back to his father in heaven, crowned with all glory as the king, and there will be a considerable time before he returns. So that means the disciples should not be expecting Jesus' kingdom of glory to appear immediately. So like, from the beginning, Jesus is letting them know, don't expect this to actually happen right away. Okay, so already from the get-go of this parable, we're seeing Jesus address the misunderstanding that Luke revealed to us in verse 11. Now, the nobleman, thats he's going to be the main character in this parable. The first thing he does, getting ready to go on this journey into the far country before he returns, he calls 10 of his servants. He gives 10 minas. What do these two details give to us? Yeah, the 10 servants represent the disciples. Uh, so those are the ones uh, whom our Lord will use in his kingly rule uh, in this hidden way under his word and sacraments. Uh, they'll be his ambassadors, right? his apostles in his kingdom of grace. And the minas uh, the nobleman gives represent the means that Jesus gives his disciples uh, to work on his behalf. So that would uh, be in, especially in regard to bringing the gospel to others. So primarily, we would then speak of the gospel and the sacraments. But we ought not uh, miss that there are also other gifts that God bestows upon them uh, that they would use for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So I would I would say primarily it's the word, uh, but I would add that God also gives to us uh, gifts that we are then able to use in as we live by faith in his word and sacraments. We then uh, are, are able to use the gifts that God has given us for the sake of his kingdom as well. And so, uh, yeah, it starts with the, the disciples of that time who are listening to this parable, but but certainly then applies to the Christians and and, and especially, I would say, um, the, the pastors in the sense of, of giving out the, the, the word and sacrament um, in to, to, to the Christians. 
uh, and thereby continuing the kingly rule uh, through the means of grace. In, in terms of that broad understanding that, yes, primarily these minas are going to show us the way the word and the sacrament do the work of the kingdom that Jesus has given, but that broader understanding that it goes, there, there are other gifts that are put into service. It, does Zacchaeus and, and what's just happened and the way that he's responded to the gospel provide a, and I know this is getting farther into the parable and what happens, but does Zacchaeus and what happened just in the very previous text serve as a bit of a, an illustration of minas being put into use of the, the kingdom of God? That's not just a, a word and sacrament one. Yeah. And I think that that's great. I think that that's uh, a way for us again, to connect that previous account uh, and what Zacchaeus has just done. I mean, these, this for us, I mean, we might even separate this in a, in a lectionary or in a Bible class, you know, by a full week. For them, it's it's within the same time, right? And yeah. so, all of a sudden, here you have a man who says that he is uh, going to give away half of his his goods to the poor, and he's saying that he, uh, you know, is going to pay back anybody he's defrauded fourfold, uh, and he is showing that with the gifts that God has given him, namely his wealth. Uh, he's able to then take care of those who are in need and to uh, to to use his his uh, you know the good gifts that God has given him in in his riches uh, to bless the kingdom of God and to bless those who are poor and poor in spirit. So yeah, I, I think that definitely, and that's why I wanted to really make the point. I think that sometimes we, because people will will err on the other side, right? And talk only about those kinds of things. I think that there's a little bit of a pendulum swing that makes you go on to the other side and say, oh, it's only the word and sacraments. Well, like I get why you, why you want right. to say that, but I, I think you need to be careful. And I, I really appreciate you bringing out that point that, I mean, we just had an example of using the mina the right way, yeah. taken not just as the word and sacraments in Zacchaeus. Right. Yeah. Just to make sure we see both of those things, I think I think is important. And you're right. It, it's easy to, to swing too far in one direction. Or Let's keep them both in, in focus and, and apply them correctly. So so well, well said. So we've got the all right. We've got the nobleman. We've got 10 of the servants who have been given 10 minas. And then he tells them, you know, engage in business until I come. In the meantime, though, there's also some people who don't like this nobleman. There's some citizens who hate him and they, they send a delegation after and say, hey, we don't we don't want this guy to be king, which I suppose, you know, you mentioned the the historical background of, of Archelaus. And that sounds pretty true to form there, too. But how does that apply to, to what Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God? Yeah, so these re represent all those who rejected Jesus. Uh, and so that would include at the time, I mean, just think of your your scriptures and the accounts you know of the scribes and the Pharisees, all the, you know, the woe to you that he ends up uh, um, divvying out to them and all the other Jewish leaders and and those who, who simply, I mean, they, they even saw, you think about, I always find this fascinating in, in uh, the Gospel of John, for example, where the very reason they want to crucify him and kill him is because he raises Lazarus from the dead. And it's just, my goodness, you see a, a miracle and, and you want to kill him. Um, you've rejected him. And so these are, these are the people who've rejected Jesus. Obviously, we don't want to, to say this only applies to those in the immediate context. We're just trying to start with the immediate context so then we can apply it to us. Because if you don't know the immediate context, you're not going to be able to apply it to today accurately. So this starts with the scribes, the Pharisees, and other Jewish leaders. Most of them rejected Jesus. You know, you've got a few, you know, Pharisees who didn't, you know, think of like Nic Nicodemus, um, who eventually, you know, takes the body of Jesus from the cross uh, and gives him a proper burial with Joseph of Arimathea. But most of them did not want him. 
and notice it, it he's called this man so this man to reign over them you know no jesus taught them clearly he performed many miracles but still they failed to see that you know quote this man is also god's own son who would die and then rise ascend and return for judgment as their king so these citizens who hate the noblemen represent all of those who rejected jesus well, and, and even I think, and just to keep this in the context that Jesus is telling it, the fact that you have citizens who hate this nobleman who want who's going to become king is a, another answer to this question about the kingdom of God appearing immediately, not just in the sense of the timing of it, but in the in the nature of the coming that it's going to yeah. come in the midst of people hating it, which again is probably pretty surprising to these people. Yeah, and you know, and one other connection there to earlier in chapter 19 with Zacchaeus, and he tells him to hurry, come down, I'm going to stay at your house. Yeah. And what do the people do? They grumble. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And so you've got that within that too. I mean, immediate context where he is, you know, they hate him for it. They, they think this is ridiculous. And so, and I appreciate what you said too there about the nature of the kingdom. We do not want to misunderstand that just because these disciples believe that Jesus is going to bring in this glorious kingdom right away, that they are wrong to believe that the kingdom is still being brought about. It is just the nature of it is it's hidden under his gracious word and sacraments and faith. Um, and it will be revealed when he returns. Well, and, and so in, in that sense, there is, a like like you said, they, they've got a misunderstanding about the timing. They've got a misunderstanding about the nature, but they are correct that the kingdom is coming. And, and in that sense, a, a parable like this is going to prepare them for what they are about to see as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. There's going to be these shouts of joy, but then rejection quickly follows. And, and again, I, I know they don't understand it at the time. But looking back on it, they're able to, I mean, their faith is strengthened because they see, oh, yeah, Jesus was bringing the kingdom through all of this, even though it looked like, and it was rejection and persecution, still these events that he accomplished there in Jerusalem, and then, you know, all the way to the end of the story as Jesus gives in this parable, but all of that is his establishing of this kingdom, him being given this kingdom. And so, it, I mean, it, it strengthens their confidence, I think to go through that suffering and death with Jesus, knowing that the kingdom is coming through these things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's something that, you know, we receive the kingdom only through, through suffering, yeah. through much suffering. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so you're right. I mean, they'll, they'll come back after, I mean, John talks about that too, that after the resurrection, they realize these things. I mean, fully at Pentecost, right. Where they, God, God gives them the the spirit in such a way that they're able to understand not just the words of Jesus as as the spirit is leading them into all truth as Jesus promised, but also being able to look at the the Old Testament scriptures and see how they have also prophesied not only the suffering servant, um, but also then their own suffering as they carry out the kingdom work um, that that this parable is speaking of. So by verse 14, then, the, the scene has been set with the nobleman leaving. He's left 10 servants with these 10 minas. There are those who hate him. They've sent a delegation after, say, we don't like this guy. We don't want to be king. Everything fast forwards into verse 15. He returns after this long time that he's gone away to this far country. What happens upon the return of the nobleman? Well, the first thing to consider, you know, I just want to reemphasize this, that Jesus received the kingdom. So, I mean, when you when you look at verse 15, it says that having received the kingdom, 
uh, he, he received the kingdom when he ascended and was seated at the right hand of God. Uh, there he is interceding as the God-man for all who trust in him until his return. Uh, you think about that in, in Romans 8, that he is at the right hand of God and, and interceding for us. And, and when he returns, uh, is how this verse begins, he will order the servants who had been entrusted with the minas uh, to be called to him. Uh, and he will do this that he might know what they had gained uh, by doing business. So in other words, Jesus will ask for his disciples uh, and those who follow in the disciples train uh, till our day to tell him what they did with the gifts God bestowed upon them that they would use for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Right. And we already established that this would be especially the gospel and sacraments, but then all of this that God has given us and he's given us everything, our whole body, our souls, our money, our goods, our intellect, everything and, and how we are using this for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So, so that's why he's come back here, uh, according to the parable. And I appreciate you emphasizing that Jesus does say, having received the kingdom. So he, he did accomplish what he intended to do. He was given the kingdom. Those citizens who were his enemies did not succeed. And that, that detail is going to become important toward the end. So he's come back as king. He brings his servants to him first. And we've got three that are mentioned. The first two fall into one category, the third into another. Uh, you mentioned this earlier. How, how is the language that the first two servants use significant in the way they address the Lord and they describe the results? Yeah, this is great. They, they do not say, well, I used the mina and I made a bunch more, right? I mean, kind of like this self-confidence, I've done this uh, myself. Instead, listen to, again to what they say, Lord, your mina has made 10 or five minas more. And what they're saying is that it is only because the Lord gives the gifts that are necessary to grow his kingdom, that they have had more minas to give back to him. And so the disciples simply use their God-given abilities and resources, again, most especially the gospel and the sacraments, to go about their work for the sake of the kingdom. That these servants recognize this is just simply evident in the way that they say it. And so that's something for us to really contemplate, that, that they really don't focus on themselves, but they focus on the Lord and that it is his I mean, it reminds you of other parts of, of Scripture. You know, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what is our duty, right? right. Uh, they, they know when they use their God-given gifts and are faithful in purely preaching the gospel, in ministering the sacraments according to the Lord's institution, in giving, uh, you know, to the poor like Zacchaeus did, or, or using what they have for the sake of the kingdom of God, the sake of their church, um, or within their own families, and to support uh, future uh, Christian education, and, and all of these things. We could go on and on about what the mina represents. But when they are doing this, it is really God who is at work through these instruments, uh, it reminds you of, of the doctrine of vocation. We are called and then placed into an orderly life that God has for us. But it is to God that all glory is due as he works through us uh, within his kingdom. And what a comfort that is, that doctrine of vocation for us as Christians. We're going to keep talking about this parable on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, looking at Luke 19 with Pastor Stephen Preuss. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, March 25th. We're studying Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27 with Pastor Stephen Preuss. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Vinton, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, prior to the break, we were talking about the first two servants who return to their Lord, and they show him, your mina has made 10 or five minas more. They, they both recognize that the Lord's mina is what has done the work in the same way that the Lord's gifts do the work through us now. His word is sacrament. That does the work. What a joy that is for pastors that we, it's not about us. It's about the Lord's word, the Lord's gifts, all of his gifts do the work of the kingdom. And so then the Lord responds to both. Uh, it's striking that in both cases, you know, it, it's not so much about the amount as it is about the faithfulness. Tell us about the Lord's response to these first two servants. Yeah, he says, well done, good servant, uh, to, to the first one, uh, because he's pleased that he used what the Lord gave him wisely. Uh, and it's the same thing for, for the other one. Uh, it's a reminder that God is pleased with us through faith in Christ. And when we, by faith, then carry out what he has given us to do as his servants in his kingdom. And, you know, that's something that we we sometimes need, need a reminder of, that God is pleased with us only through faith. Without faith in God, it is impossible to please God. And so that that's where we, we start. But as we then live out our Christian lives and ever so weakly are, are carried along and led by the Holy Spirit who, who is leading us in our Christian lives, God is even pleased, even though it's stained with sin and that we are imperfect, he's still pleased with what his dear children do uh, as they do it according to his will, according to his commandments. And so when we carry out by faith these, these things given to us to do as his servants in his kingdom, we should see that God says, well done, good servant. This is how Jesus responds as he comes back as this nobleman in this parable. And then he also gives them a rich reward in the kingdom of glory. So they're in the kingdom of grace and the work that they've done in the kingdom of grace is then given a reward in the kingdom of glory. Uh, seeing that they are faithful in a little, he gives them much more. And it's interesting to note, I, I didn't put this in any uh, notes I gave you to, to look at when we were talking about this before, too, a little bit, that the, the mina, um, I didn't really know what, what a mina was uh, as far as, you know, the amount of money. And I, I looked this up that a mina uh, is actually just about three months wages. And a lot of people will compare this parable and think it's the same one as the parable of the talents found in, in Matthew 25, I don't think it is. And one reason that I think it isn't is because a talent is 20 years mm. wages. So you've got three months versus 20, uh, 20 years. So here, uh, when it's, he sees that they're faithful in little, I mean, it's quite, quite little compared to the talents. 
but he gives them much more here. And so what we call this, we call these rewards of grace. Uh, we inherit eternal life, we know, as a free gift, right? It is a gift of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. But Jesus will impart additional gifts based on how we have used his gifts, uh, most especially how we have used his word and sacraments, how we have have thought of them, how we have lived out the life of faith that he has given us. Um, there are differences in results for each person, as we see 10 and then 5 here. Uh, shows us that not every person is going to be the same. And so, too, there are degrees of glory when it comes to these rewards of of grace. Uh, we, we ought not be afraid of saying this um, because we don't want to make it seem as if we are rewarded with eternal life because of our good works, uh, because we, we need to understand it rather as, no, you get into heaven, into eternal life by God's grace, and then... God, in addition, gives these good rewards uh, because he is so gracious and wants to continue to give good rewards as we uh, live out our faith, clinging to his grace alone, knowing that that alone has saved us, uh, but also knowing that uh, he's going to you know, give us even more than we can possibly imagine and be pleased with what we have done as we've gone through our lives as Christians. You mentioned earlier the the verse from Luke 17, verse 10, which I think describes the attitude of these first two servants well. You know, all they're thinking is we're just the servants. We're only doing what we've been given to do. They're, they're not, I mean, they, they are living in that grace and in nothing more. And then what happens here is a surprise, I think. And especially when, when we get to the end of the the third servant and what happens with him, there's, there's surprise at the, at this. They're not concerned about earning anything. They just are living in the joy of being under a, a Lord who is full of grace and gifts. So they're, they're just living as the servants and then yeah. he gives. And I, yeah. And I like to always think about these rewards, like for myself, you know, what will these additional rewards be like? And I just like to pray the Psalm, uh, you know, that I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I mean, I'm not going to be upset, in other words, if I really just want to be a doorkeeper, as long as I'm in there with right. him, I will be happy with a pat on the back from Jesus, if that's all it is, right? But we, we so we never want to look at these rewards as if we're, you know, chomping at the bit to try to get better than somebody else. Yeah. No, we're always we're always doing this in a humble way, believing that God uh, does, we, we're, we don't even deserve to be there at all. Right. And so we should be grateful for even being there. And then we'll be even more amazed at the fact that he gives us anything because we know we don't deserve it. Yeah. Now, when, when, when we start worrying about who's the greatest, who has the best seat, Jesus tells us about being the lowest and being the servant of all. I mean, his disciples had that attitude in several cases where he had to correct it and, and he would say the same to us. So yeah, we're just living as the servants, uh, joyfully receiving the gifts of the master. That's the first two who are mentioned. Then Jesus points out another servant who has a different attitude and he says different things to his Lord. Tell us about this quote, other servant and what he did with his mina and especially how he thinks of his, his master. Yeah, this is the other, the heterodox uh, <laughs> servant here. And he's, he does, does not understand either the mina or Jesus, the nobleman. So he didn't use the mina. He buried it in a handkerchief. And this means that he did not use the gifts God gave him. He uh, squandered, especially the word and sacraments, and didn't think anything of them and didn't make use of them. 
And then he also, uh, his whole life, the things that God gave him from his body to his goods, uh, to his relationships, he did not use for the sake of the kingdom, but just used for however way he wanted to use them. Uh, and the reason that's given is because he was afraid of the nobleman, thinking him to be a severe and greedy man, right? Taking what he did not deposit and reaping what he did not sow. And what this tells us is that he not only had the, the mina wrong, thinking that it's just for him to do whatever he wants with and not for the sake of the kingdom, but he had Jesus wrong too. He had the nobleman wrong. His faith was wrong. Uh, he did not trust in Jesus as his gracious king. He thinks he's severe. But he's not severe. He's, he's gracious. He's the one who took his sins away and set God's anger aside, appeasing God's wrath by his sacrifice on the cross. Uh, so he did not see Jesus as magnanimous, uh, you know, generous, uh, like he was to the other servants. And so that's why this, this other servant is so wrong. His faith in Jesus was all wrong. And, and so his love for Jesus and his kingdom and the people in his kingdom was all wrong, too. He wasted everything Jesus gave him uh, for the sake of his kingdom. So then the nobleman responds to this. And again, he gets different words from the nobleman as he, but this is maybe surprising. What the nobleman says to him is according to what he just said. So take us into the way the nobleman responds to this third servant. Yeah, he condemns the wicked sermon with uh, servant with his own words. So he takes the very words that he used and uses them against him. So the, the servant had asserted, and, it, and wrongly, as we just talked about there, that the nobleman had a certain character, uh, but then he didn't even act accordingly. So if he had no sense of duty to this benevolent Lord, which he clearly didn't, then he should have at least feared a stern one. I mean, if he really is severe and greedy, then why would you not try to appease him in some way? Why would you not have done the bare minimum and just put the money in the bank and, and received interest for it? Uh, so the problem with this wicked servant is that he he doesn't even understand that if if he were right, he should be acting differently. Instead, he's just indifferent toward the mina, toward the nobleman. And so the nobleman just condemns him with his own words, and then he takes away that one mina and he gives it to the one, uh, the first one who is faithful with the ten. Uh, and this shows that the disciples have to take seriously the gifts and the opportunities bestowed upon them for the sake of the kingdom. Uh, that it's it it's not acceptable to be slothful. It's not acceptable to just be idle uh, and sit around. Um, it shows that you have not actually taken to heart uh, what that mina is, what these these gifts are. You know, most especially the word that gives us the forgiveness of sins and the promise of God's uh, you know, Christ's kingly uh, rule over us with his grace and forgiveness uh, uh, through his word and sacrament. So, yeah, this this nobleman is condemned with the very words that he uses to try to excuse himself. Well, and what's what's striking about this last one is that, you know, as as the nobleman points out, he doesn't even live according to what he believed. I mean, he if he had really believed what he thought about the master, he should have done something else. So he, I mean, there's that that hypocrisy is just, I mean, it's dripping here. And the other the other thing, and this is maybe a, a sad reality, though it is the reality, is that the nobleman gives him what he wants. Like you wanted a master who is these things. So here's what it is. And I, I mean, that's the I think the tragedy of this 
third servant who's mentioned here particularly is that he'd been given all of this. I mean, he received the same gift as the other servants, and yet he he didn't want the master as he, the master wanted to be known. He wanted something else, and so he ended up getting it, which is that I, I think, I mean, that's the tragedy of unbelief is that yeah. we don't want the good that God wants, and that's just and that's just terrible. Yeah, it is. I mean, if you think, like, like you say, I mean, God offers to the world uh, reconciliation through his son, not counting our trespasses against us and declaring us to be righteous in his son. And, you know, it is in rejecting that and acting as if that's not the greatest treasure, but that there's something else that's that's greater. Uh, it, it, it's it's only that rejection that that damns us and it's god giving us ultimately what we want you don't want me you don't want christ you don't want my righteousness you don't want this reconciliation okay well then you can have what you you want as you as you put it very well and i it is it's 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 unbelief uh and it you know we know why people reject it we know the parable of the sower for example as to why people you know they they uh find other things more important, riches, cares, and pleasures of life. They, they don't like the suffering that comes along with, with holding on to the word and whatnot. So we understand why, but yeah, in the end, when people choose that, which is, you know, not God's word and not in accord with God's word and choose those things to be more precious than, than this wonderful gospel and, and God's kingdom and his people and, and the support of that. Yeah, they do. They get what they want. Mm-hmm. And, God gives them over to that. So in the from the parable, then, we've got this last servant. He's got the one mina who's taken away, and then it's given to the one who has 10. This causes surprise in verse 25. What What's the surprise that happens? What's Jesus' response? Sure. The, the, they're surprised that the Lord says to take the one mina from the wicked servant and give it to the one who had 10. And they say, Lord, he has 10 minas. So the ones who said this were the disciples and the other hearers, uh, probably even Zacchaeus there, right, who are listening to the parable. Uh, and it shows really how surprising it is to, to them and to us that those who are faithful will be so richly rewarded by God's grace. Um, and that goes back to us when we talked about these rewards of God's grace that, you know, in eternal life were rewarded. It just seems so surprising to us as we we ourselves are are clinging to God's grace, believing we're totally undeserving, right? And then and then you were given even more. Uh, but it does also show that God God's not wasteful either. He gives everything uh, away. Um, and Jesus is really just telling us the way it is in His kingdom too. He says, "I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away." So this means that the more the disciples labor for Jesus the greater the blessings. Uh, St. Paul says, whoever sows sparingly <clears throat> will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And Jesus' saying then uh, is, is meant to communicate that. And, you know, the flip side of the, the more the disciples labor for Jesus, the greater the blessings is that the slothful nominal disciples uh, who do not use the gifts entrusted to them uh, will have everything taken away too. Uh, and so the, the surprising part, I believe though, is that, that he's so gracious in, in rewarding the man who, who, uh, had 10 already. 
Well, and with that, the more positive side of that, then it seems that that would be a great encouragement to the disciples and then also to us in our faithfulness. I think it's in 1 Corinthians 15 at the end where after Paul has talked about the resurrection, he says, or maybe, I don't know, maybe it's somewhere else, but know, know then that your labor is not in vain. That, yeah. you know, I mean, we, you, we talked about earlier how the word and the sacraments as the gifts of Jesus, they do the work and, and all the gifts of Jesus are what does the work. Sometimes it doesn't look like it. I mean, and, and I think pastors using the word in sacraments know that sometimes we preach the word faithfully and it doesn't look like anything's happening. Seeing this end toward the, the parable of the way, you know, that the one is taken and given that there is a reward. And again, not that you're trying to get something more, but you see that your labor is not in vain, that that something is happening even when it doesn't look like it. Going back to that idea of the kingdom being hidden and the way that it comes is is not the way that we expect to see the, the end of the result or the end of the parable and the results, I think strengthens us to keep doing that labor now, knowing that it's not in vain. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at the texts in scripture that we refer to suffering and we're always pointed to the joy that is before us, uh, just as Jesus endured the cross, uh, despising the shame of it all. He knew what it is he would then have. He'd be exalted at the right hand of God. And, and we too, you know, faithfulness in this life is met with, with suffering uh, because the world hates that the devil's after us to try to get us to be unfaithful and our sinful flesh is lazy and, and gets, gets worn out. And so we, we have to have that, that, uh, that joy put before us constantly. Um, I often say to the members of the congregation, you know, we say we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Are you looking? Uh, look, you know, uh, it's, it's one, of those, one of those precious truths that we in, in the church uh, need to always cling to because it is our, our hope. That, that we not ever think that the suffering of this present time and our faithfulness, because it's, it's hidden, uh, is not going to end up bearing fruit. Luther said we're going we're gonna to kick ourselves that we didn't suffer more uh, in order to understand more clearly how, how, uh, how much the, the sufferings cannot compare uh, to, to what will come. And, you know, it's a fight. It's hard. I'm, I'm teaching my children, the whole congregation, rise to arms with prayer, employ you uh, this, this march. And uh, one of the, the stanzas is, cast afar this world's vain pleasure and boldly strive for heavenly treasure. Be steadfast in the Savior's might. Trust the Lord who stands beside you, for Jesus from all harm will hide you. By faith you conquer in the fight. Take courage, weary soul. Look forward to the goal. Joy awaits you. The race well run, your long war won, your crown shines splendid as the sun. And that's that's what we need. We need to look forward to the goal. That's how we can take courage in our weary souls. Joy awaits you. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think that's good for us to bring out uh, as we see, you know, Jesus, as we're going to get into in this next part, Jesus was hated. They hated his reign over them. And people today still hate the reign of Jesus over them. And they don't want it. They don't see it as gracious. They don't see that, that the life he offers is actually a life full of, of grace and mercy and love. Uh, and, and so uh, we, again, always need to be pointed to that 
that hope, that surprising reward uh, by God's grace. Uh, take us into that last verse then. The, the enemies that were mentioned toward the beginning of the parable come back into view. Now that the nobleman has returned, he's talked to his servants. Now he, re- he brings up the enemies. What happens to them? Yeah, it's quite the ending. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. It reminds me, just as I read it now again, of, of the prophets of Baal with, with Elijah. But, um, you know, here Jesus returns to the issue of those who hate him and do not want him to reign over them. They'll be brought before him on the last day and slaughtered. That's, that's explicitly what he says. It makes me think of Psalm 2 as well. They should have listened to Psalm 2 and kissed the son lest he be angry and they perish in the way. Uh, the Lord will one day require all knees to bow before him, whether willingly or unwillingly, as we hear in Philippians 2. Vengeance is the Lord's, we're always told, so that we don't you know, try to repay others. But we often forget to say vengeance is the Lord. He will repay. He will. And for those who are found outside of Christ, for those who hate his reign over them, for those who despise his word and his sacrament, and those who do not want to live by faith in the Son of God who, who loved us and gave himself for us and is our king and is the king over all rulers on earth, uh, they will have to face this uh, very terrifying uh, reality that will happen one day. Uh, your reference to Psalm 2 there, I think, is very appropriate, given the nature of this parable talking about the kingdom and what that psalm says about the king who does reign over all other kings. We've got about five minutes here, Pastor Preuss. We've talked about some application along the way, but, but help us to, to wrap things up through this parable of the nobleman who becomes king. What it, What's the application for us as, as Christians today? Well, there's both a warning and an encouragement. The warning is, do not be a nominal Christian or a slothful pastor. Uh, make use of the means of grace. That's why God gave them to you. Uh, I'll, I'll just mention, you know, at the Lord's Supper, where, where Jesus says to that, do this as often as you drink it. I mean, that often implies that you would actually have it often. And so make use of it because it's it's where you get his grace. And if you despise these things... Uh, and you think, oh, no, this is nothing good. I don't need his word. I don't need his His sacrament. I don't need the means of grace. I've got my faith, whatever that is. Um, no, God, God wants you to have saving faith, faith that clings to his means of grace. And so do not be a nominal Christian, and, nor, nor a slothful pastor that doesn't think that the people need this more than they need anything else. Uh, they don't need you to be winsome or or perfect or or anything else. They need you to be faithful with the mina that has been entrusted to you. And so don't think that your duties are about something else. I'd say the same thing to parents, uh, not to be nominally Christian with their children, but to know that you, every pastor or every uh, father and mother are a bishop and bishopress, as Luther says, of their home. And to to actually teach the word of God and, and, again, not be nominal Christians. And then also to cultivate the many other gifts that God has given you uh, in order to use them for the sake of his kingdom. Uh, if you remain slothful or nominal, what, what does the parable say to you? What is it but a warning that you will have everything taken away from you? Or worse, if you're one who just hates Jesus' reign over you, remember what Jesus says will happen to them. Uh, which which is even more terrifying. So there's definitely a, a warning here 
against nominal Christianity, against slothful pastors, against just using the things of your life that God has given you, your body, your your possessions, everything that that he has blessed you according to the first article gifts. You just think about those. Um, they are for the sake of the kingdom. You know, this this is not just for you to just live whatever kind of life you want. There's a lot of freedom for sure, but God has given you his word to guide you in how you should live. Uh, and so take this as a warning. But that's the warning part. Uh, the second part is there's great encouragement in this parable. Uh, Jesus is the nobleman, uh, and he's the nobleman because he's the king. He is the king who was crowned with thorns on the cross in order to die for your salvation. And he did that as God's son made man, and he has risen as God's son made man. He is forever in one person, fully God and fully man. And now he has ascended and is at the right hand of God and is indeed interceding for us. Uh, and he has given you the, the mina uh, of his means of grace to make use of throughout your life. Uh, pastors need this reminder that it's for them, that they receive it just as they give it. And that the people who are uh, given pastors to uh, make use of the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments that are uh, done according to Christ's institution for your, for your sake, that you might be forgiven and know the grace of God. These means of grace keep you in the faith and give you strength to then use the other gifts and opportunities that God has given you to, to further support the kingdom of grace until we enter the kingdom of glory at Christ's return. Um, and again, Jesus has taken his kingdom. He, he does right now sit at the right hand of God. He is interceding for you. Uh, and he has those same scarred hands that, that show that you have peace with God through what he's done for you. And he is longing to bring you to eternal life. And this is the ultimate reward, regardless of the degree with which uh, any of us shine in glory. Pastor Stephen Preuss is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Vinton, Iowa, helping us today with Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. Pastor Preuss, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 19 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.